Amen. If you are someone who needs help, if you have habits and hurts and hang-ups that you are going through, we encourage you this Wednesday night to take opportunity uh, with Corey uh, as he leads us through Celebrate Recovery on Wednesday evenings and Friday evenings. Uh, There's a flyer in your bulletin. You can find more about that. But also, I want to encourage you, uh, even if you say, well, I know somebody else that needs it, encourage them to come with you. Tell them you're going to bring them and you're going to bring them as your guest to this opportunity. So we pray that that ministry would have a great impact within our world because all of us have times where we need help, where we are hurting, where we have habits and hang-ups that are dragging us down. And I want to prayerfully ask you to to uh, lift up and pray uh, for Corey and Sherry as they lead this opportunity and just look for opportunities for God to open up doors for you to encourage others to participate. As we come this morning, we are going to be talking about leadership and integrity. The issue of character is central to this. And the story is told about Dwight David Eisenhower. In fact, Dwight Eisenhower records it for us in his book, At Ease, Stories I Like to Tell I, stories I tell to friends. And he says it this way. He says when he was a young commander there uh, serving at one of his first bases, he found out that an officer had been cheating at cards. And so Dwight Eisenhower called that officer into his office and he looked at the young man and he said, do you see these cards? The young man said, yes, I do. He said, are these your cards? Do you recognize them? And the young man said, no, how could I do that? He said, well, I can show you exactly how you have marked these cards. Do you want me to do that? Stuttering and stammering, the young officer looked back at uh, the commander and said, no, sir, you don't need to do that. Dwight Eisenhower looked at him and said, would you rather resign at once for the good of the service or would you like to be tried by court-martial? Young man looked and said, I'll submit my resignation this afternoon. Later on, a congressman from that young man's district called and said, is there any way that you could reinstate him, reassign him to a different unit? Is there any way that at the very least he could be put back in some form of service? And Dwight Eisenhower said, absolutely not. He has proven his character. The congressman said, well, at least could you let him withdraw that one sentence, that one statement for the good of the service in his letter of resignation? And Dwight Eisenhower said, as far as I was concerned, the man had been guilty of cheating. Isn't that amazing? How standards have changed in just a mere 50 to 60 years. How standards have changed because now it doesn't really matter what you do in your personal life because your personal life is not part of your professional life. But the reality is character and integrity fills all of life. Indeed, the reality is that character is what you are when no one else is looking. D.L. Moody said it this way when he said character is what you are in the dark. Think about that. Character is what you are in the dark. When you don't think there's anybody that can see you, when you don't think anybody knows, see, that defines and that is at the very center of our character and integrity. The truth of the matter is that we are 
uh, that who is that who we are and what we are is to be borne out in our behavior at all times. For First Samuel chapter sixteen verse seven, what does that say? It says that man looks on what the outward appearance, but God judges. God looks at what the heart. And so the truth is, your character is what you are in the dark. As we study this book. Paul's first order of business was to set in order the leadership for these new churches that were springing up on the island of Crete. It is a character of, it is the character of the leadership in the church that sets the tenor. It sets the tone for the witness and for the work of the church within that community. And we must understand that the church is not merely a civic organization. It is God's organism, God's children, God's family existing within the of this fallen and fault-filled world. See, the church is God's spiritual kingdom and we exist within the midst of a fallen world. But understand this, our character, our integrity, who we are when no one else is watching actually testifies to the truthfulness of whether or not we have been changed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the church is God's kingdom he has given to fulfill the great commission by facilitating the flow to the ends of the gospel to the ends of the earth by our work and our witness in accordance with this view the church is to be led by a plurality of spiritually spiritually mature men called elders who faithfully follow Jesus Christ's lordship as they lead the local church indeed Christ's lordship is to be seen and it is to be evident in the church's leadership Christ's lordship should be present in every Christian's life, but especially when people from the community, from people from within the world, look at the leadership of the local church. They should see Christ's lordship demonstrated in each and every life. So we come this morning, let us take our Bibles and let us look there in, first, in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, and let us see that Christ's lordship Let us see Christ's Lordship in the leadership of the local church. Let's stand now for the reading of this God's holy and inspired word. Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9 reads as follows. For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely... If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So that he might be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Father, we ask this morning that as you lead us and guide us, Father, that you would show us what it means to be servants under your lordship. Father, let us be men and women of integrity and character that testify to the world what it means to be changed and transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, lead us and guide us now 
These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We see in this passage that God has called and gifted some spiritually mature men within each church to exercise spiritual oversight under the headship of Jesus Christ, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Indeed, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 establishes for us the one who holds all things together, causes all things to hold together, is the same one who is to be the head of the church. So whose church is it to be? Let me ask you that again. Thank you very much. Whose church is it supposed to be? It's not your church. It's not my church. It's not their church. It's Christ's church. He's the head of the church. And he has given certain men, spiritually mature men, to lead and to guide the church. In fact, throughout the New Testament, we find them referred to in different ways. We find the word elder or presbyteros in the Greek that refers to one who is leading or, or in a spiritually mature position of leading within the local church. We find that, uh, that word used throughout. We find the word overseer, which comes from the Greek word episkopos, which means that this This is one who is managing or overseeing, leading out in the midst of the church. We find in Hebrews chapter 13, or we also find the word pastor, shepherd, poimeno, used within the text of the New Testament. This is one who is an under-shepherd of the great high shepherd, and he is supposed to be leading and feeding and caring for God's flock. We find in Hebrews 13, 17, for the leaders of the church to be those who who are... uh, who are setting the example and directing the flow and facilitation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. It says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give account. Now, basically, if you were to sum it down, sum it up, there are four primary responsibilities for the pastors, for the elders, for the teachers, for the overseers, for the leaders within God's church. And those four primary obligations within the New Testament are first and foremost to preach and teach the gospel and sound doctrine. Secondly, pastors are given to pray and care for the sick. Thirdly, pastors are given to judge doctrinal issues that may come up that might be causing factions or division within the church. Fourthly, they are given to protect the church from false teachers and flawed teaching. If our pastors do those four things, they have done a good job, right? If they, number one, preach and teach the gospel and the doctrine of the word of God, then indeed they have done well. If they are praying and caring for those who are sick and having facing difficult times, then they have done well. If they are judging these doctrinal issues and bringing unity within the church, they have done well. If they are protecting the church from false teachers and flawed doctrine, then indeed they are doing well. The church's leadership should always be under Christ lordship and that's what we're saying and so as we walk through this passage today that's the goal of any man who would lead god's church now first of all let's look in verse five and let's see that paul gives titus a duty to do and all of us have duties to do god gives us all jobs to complete and fulfill in ministering of the local church but paul had left titus there at crete evidently they had been traveling through crete they had been preaching and teaching the gospel and he had been faithfully proclaiming it as people responded they were baptized into 
into the faith. And then now, and then God had led Paul to move on. And now he leaves Titus behind to set in order that which is broken, that which is deformed, that which is out of order. And in fact, it says there in verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete. For what reason? That you would set in order what remains. Now, the Greek word that gives us that terminology to set in order is the word ortho, and we still use the word ortho in our culture, don't we? Ortho simply means to set in order something that is broken, something that is deformed or disfigured. And so when you have deformed or disfigured teeth, you go to the orthodontist. And then when you have a deformed or broken bone, where do you go? Orthopedic surgeon. That's exactly right. So we see that. We understand that. Paul's saying, hey, listen, you're supposed to exercise that same skill in setting in order the things of the church. The groups of believers indeed had been established. They had been baptized. But now there needed to be gospel discipleship because, remember, that is a part of the Great Commission. What did Jesus say? I want you to take the gospel. I want you to go to the ends of the earth. But listen to me. I want you to preach and teach and proclaim to every nation those who receive are to be what baptized and i want you what was the final command within the great commission to teach them all things you ever think about that that's a part of fulfilling evangelism not just to evangelize, not just to share the message, not just to tell people they're a sinner who needs a Savior, not just to baptize them when they are converted, but then to teach them all things. Discipleship is an integral part of the, the New Testament church, and it should be an integral part of our church because Christ never intended His disciples to be Lone Ranger Christians. See, His disciples are to be involved in local communities where they would be mutually accountable, where they would hold one another accountable, where they would be as iron sharpening iron, where they indeed would motivate one another, spur one another on to love and to good deeds, where they might hear the Word of God proclaimed, where they would then encourage one another to live it out, and where they would show practical expressions of gospel love for one another. That's what Christ intended His church to be. And so Christian discipleship happens within the context of the local church. And here Paul is saying to Titus, listen Titus, here's what you need to do. Set in order leaders, elders, who would facilitate this discipleship in the local church. This is not just to be one pastor, not just to be one shepherd or shepherd or elders. This is to be a group. And look at what it says there in verse 5. Appoint what? Elders. How many is that? At the very least, we can say more than one. Do you realize every time a local church's elders are referenced in the New Testament, every single time in the New Testament a local church is referenced about elders, guess what it says? Elders. Plural. More than one. So there's not just to be one person that's looked to. There are to be mature, godly men in every city so that the Christians who had been, who had responded to Paul's preaching might be discipled. 
so that they might receive the teaching of Christ in a structured format. Paul is just emphasizing here again the wisdom of God's plan for discipleship. He has appointed under-shepherds under Himself, who is the great high shepherd, so that His flock might be provided for. In Ephesians chapter 4, we see this play out when Paul tells us that one of the ways Jesus manifests His rule over the local church and His care for the local church is through what? Through officers and pastors and teachers and shepherds who were given to equip the body for the working of the ministry. See, the church suffers when we avoid setting in order that which is deformed within our context. Paul is saying, Titus, Titus, listen, I want you to understand, here's a duty you need to do. You need to make sure things are set straight and things are working properly. Appoint elders in every city For the good of the church. We need to hear that. We need to receive that. And we need to apply that as well. But secondly, not only that, we need to see an example to maintain. These elders are to have an example that maintains the truthfulness of the gospel in the context of the church and the community and the world. Paul makes sure that these qualifications for those who would be set apart for the responsibility of spiritual oversight is on the record. Listen, this isn't Greta Van Susteren's record on the record. This is God's on the record. You want to know the standards? You want to know what they should look like? How they should live? What they should be doing? Here it is. Here's what they should look like. What we see unfurled before us is a list of what a spiritually mature man should look like. How we should live in the home. How we should live within the church and within the community. What our lives should look like. So let me give you one warning up front. This isn't the list that only a few of the men who are called to a special office within the local church should seek to attain to. This is what every one of us should strive to live like. That's what we should strive to look like and to live like. And so here we go. Let's let's look at these these things that are going on. We well let let me just back up and actually qualify one thing. The this list that is here gives us the mark of Christian maturity. And the reality is every Christian in every age has been tempted and pressed by his culture to conform back to the standards of his, of his community, of his culture. Now, Crete had people who were best described, as it says in verse 12, by their own prophet as those who were liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And indeed, the Christians in Crete were, were trying to be pressed back into that mold so that they didn't make others uncomfortable, so that they didn't look different. But Paul says the leaders of God's church must maintain an example that is above reproach. This doesn't mean that they are to be perfect, but it means that they are to be beyond verifiable accusation that if somebody says hey you know what i know him to be a drunkard no you can't prove that oh i know he's cheating on his wife he's an adulterer no you can't prove it it doesn't mean that the accusation can't be launched but that when the accusation is launched it is not verifiable because we live with integrity and character because who we are in the dark is really who we are in the light That's the standard for every one of us. It doesn't matter who we are with or where we are. We're just the same. Now, 
To, as we go through today, I want to encourage you, if you want a fuller definition of the qualifications, uh, go online and listen back to First Timothy chapter 3 sermons uh, about eight or nine months ago, uh, almost a year ago now, and, and listen to those. But today we're going to get a sense of what we're talking about. It says in this passage, first of all, in verse 6, that the elder is to be a godly model, a godly example in the home. Listen, if the elder is to foster godliness within the church, where should he... First, start fostering godliness. Where? At home. Because you can't say it in public and deny it by your lifestyle in your home. So if you want to sponsor godliness, you want to find a man who would sponsor godliness in the church, look to see what he's doing in his home. Is he sponsoring it there? He ought to be a man who is a one-woman man. This is an, an issue of marital and sexual fidelity. Indeed, there are many men who have been married for 40 years to the same woman, and they don't meet this qualification because they have not been faithful in their minds and in their purity of thought we've got to start at home loving our wife even as christ loved the church we need to have no one else or nothing else that distracts or deters our affection for our wife we are to be the faithful husbands of one wife the second second statement is there faithful father fathers of controlled children it says in verse six the husband of one wife having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion now there's a wide variety of debate does this mean that every child must be a christian within the home of an elder some say it does I disagree because I think it's actually being qualified. It's a term of faithfulness that is being qualified by the next statement, which says that their children are not to be given to dissipation or rebellion, to drunkenness and carousing and rebellion. The children are not to be unruly or rebellious, given to a disregard of authority, to drunkenness or rebellion within the community. If elders are meant to promote godliness in the church, surely they ought to promote it in their homes and their children should not be known as such. Now let me pause just for a moment, children, and let me say this to you very clearly. Isn't it interesting that God would tie the conduct of our children to the faithfulness and the witness of our church within the context of our community. Isn't it amazing that God would tie the testimony of the young people in the Christian church and call them to look like and to live like Christians within their community? There are many people in this, many young people in this congregation who have made a profession of faith. They've come before the body and said, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer. But then they get up, they go out and they deny that confession and that baptism by the way that they live each and every day. I want to ask you this morning, young men and young women let me ask you what is the value of the confession that you have made that jesus christ is lord of your life what does it mean what does it mean on friday nights and saturday nights when you're out by yourself when nobody watching and nobody really quote unquote knows what you're doing What's the value when you're in church and you're talking and communicating with those who have come and are not believers? What's the value of your faith when you're out away from the church with those who are not believers? What is the value of your faith when you're engaged in school and extracurricular activities, when you're alone with your friends, when you're in Raleigh or Greenville? What is the value of your faith at each and every moment of your life? Young men and young women. Let me be clear. 
the testimony of the church rides on the faithfulness of our lives. We need to be very clear, very, very clear, that we should be deeply concerned not only about the profession of faith, but about our practice in daily life. So let us take that and go away and live differently as a result of it. Indeed, not only that, but now returning to the elders, let's see in verse 7 that the overseers of God's family in the local church are pictured as stewards. They are those who would manage a household, the affairs and finances of a household under the authority of God. They have been given oversight. They have been given the ability to spiritually manage that which their great high shepherd has entrusted to them. This is God's church. This is His church bought with His blood. And we are simply managers or stewards of what He has given to us. So what does it mean for the steward to be above reproach? Well, here He gives us five vices to avoid and six virtues to be added. Five vices to be avoided and six virtues to be added. But what it means is not that we are not opening ourselves up to a justified attack about our witness, particularly in these areas. This is a man, first of all, who is not set, who is not gripped or controlled by arrogance, anger, desire for drink, violence, or being a fighter, or the desire for dishonest gain and wealth. You know, so-and-so is an elder at your church. I've heard he drinks all the time. He runs around on his wife all the time. He's constantly looking for a fight. And not only that, that he is constantly advertising get-rich-quick schemes. Should that person be allowed to be an elder in the local church? Absolutely not. I've heard he's angry, angry all the time and prideful and arrogant about each and everything that he does. Should that person be a a person who is entrusted with oversight of the local church? Absolutely not. But verse 8 goes on and it gives the six virtues that are to be added to the life of the elder. He's to be hospitable. He loves what is good, what is sensible, what is just, what is devout. And he is self-controlled. In other words, he's a friend to strangers, to those who are in need. He shows them hospitality. He's a virtuous man and he loves good. He aims to do what is good. He's a fair man in all of his dealings. He's just. He's holy. He's godly. He's a devout man in every way. He's self-controlled. He's a man who evidences some degree of self-mastery. And these are the virtues and characteristics of the one who is to be an under-shepherd. You see, God is giving the local congregation and every... this local congregation and every local congregation, real life examples of his truth lived out in the elders' lives. If you look at these and lay them side by side, you could really say the five vices that are listed in verse 7 are synonymous with those vices that are listed in the, listed in the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. If you look at those virtues, they are virtues that are synonymous with the virtues that are listed in Galatians chapter 5 under those who are living according to the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The reality is, though, for you and I, see... Our behavior, really and truthfully, betrays what we believe. Our behavior betrays our belief. 
And the reality is, in every moment, we are responsible to God and to be His witnesses and His testimony within the watching world. I want to take something, just a moment, and illustrate this. And I want to show you something because there are a lot of people in our society that excuse a lot of bad behavior, a lot of actions. But I want to ask you just for a moment, and Paul Tripp does a wonderful job illustrating this when he says he takes the bottle of water, he holds it before the congregation, and he starts going like this. Now, I want to ask you the question. Why did water come out of the bottle? Why did water come out of the bottle? Because I shook it. Let me try it a different way. With a different emphasis. Why did water come out of the bottle? Because water was in the bottle. Water was in the bottle. The same is true for the Christian life. What comes out of you is what's inside of you. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the reality for us, each and every one of us is, what comes out of us shows and testifies, witnesses to the watching world, what's inside of us. Our behavior always betrays our beliefs. I'm a godly Christian man, but I'm angry all the time. I'm mad all the time. I cuss and fuss and cause a ruckus in my house every night. You're not a godly Christian man. Our lives betray and our pictures for the world to see of what it means when we say our profession, Jesus is Lord. And integrity is found not in the outward appearance, but in the internal reality of where our heart is and who we worship. If I worship myself, it's going to show in my actions and the way I behave. But if I worship Jesus Christ, my practice is going to follow my profession and everyone will see he is Lord indeed. Our faithfulness is to fulfill God's ministry. It is a faithfulness to fulfill the word that has been given to us. See, that's in verse 9. He goes on to say, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who do not believe. Indeed, we must understand that we are to be faithful to God because he has been faithful to us. God's word is trustworthy because God cannot lie. Because the word is faithful, those who teach and preach the word must be faithful as well. And we must see ourselves as those who have been given a twofold responsibility. Number one, the building up of the church in sound doctrine and healthy doctrine in the good of the church and refuting the false teachers who spread unhealthy doctrine indeed the naive church member is the one who says well we don't really want doctrine we just want a helpful devotional sermon no you don't you want healthy doctrine doctrine that feeds you doctrine that grounds you in the reality of the gospel gives you a firm place to stand and to testify to the entire world my life has been changed my life has been transformed how not because i've changed my habits but because god has changed my heart and our lives should testify that just as the physician 
must attack infection and disease, so the local church leader must attack false doctrine. It is a non-negotiable for all of God's children and especially God's pastors and elders within the church to be faithful to God, to be faithful to His Word, and to be faithful to the health and welfare of His church. But it is also each and every one of our responsibilities to see how we behave and how the witness of God is affected by our life. This morning, I want to challenge you. What is it that's inside of you? Because there are two options. There's sin that indwells you by nature and by choice, or there's the Spirit who has come and redeemed you and taken out that sin, that heart of sin, that heart of wickedness, and put within you a a heart of righteousness for the sake of God. Those are the two options. Where are you this morning? If what's inside of you and what gets spilled into all of your relationships is constantly anger and arrogance and pride and self, self-motivation, self-desires and drunkenness, you got a problem and you need a Savior. And your Savior's name is Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you have given your heart and life to Christ, but you have some problems, you have some real issues, you have some hang-ups, some hardships, come this morning and lay them down at the foot of the cross. He'll take them and deliver you from them. Father, we pray now that you would lead us and guide us. Father, that what's inside of us would, Father, be clearly seen by what comes out of us and that we would understand that what we are in the dark is really and truly what we are. Father, for some of us, that terrifies us this morning because we know we need you as our Savior. For others of us, we rejoice because we have seen the deliverance, the change that has come as we sin has been taken out of our heart and your Son, Jesus Christ, has been enthroned upon our heart. Father, let our wit- work and our witness be constantly to this watching world, those who have been changed and transformed, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would lead us in this time of decision. And Father, that in everything, every decision that is made this morning, that Father, we would follow your leadership and your lordship. Father, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand now for our time of response.